burning out of control. The sky is set ablaze in all its red and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find our shows archived for your binge listening pleasure. And we're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so you can reach us anywhere. Anytime, day or night, anywhere on planet Earth. And because things have been moving so quickly on the political scene, I'm bringing back one of my favorite people, Matt Robeson, the author of a AmorePerfectUnionForum.com, a blog devoted to a deeper dive into politics. Matt is also a contributor to TheAlternet.org, where you can read his pieces and... Uh, Things are shaken up on the presidential scene, and things are shaken up around the world with a coming pandemic. Matt, welcome to Off the Record in this consequential time. Hello. Thanks. Good to be here. Oh, good. There you are. Um, can you hear me okay? Yes. Oh, good. I got you. I got you, babe. So, so Matt, we're uh, we're in an interesting, interesting environment. We've got these two things happening. Lots of lots of uh, shakeups in the presidential race this week, but also a growing global concern, and in some places, some global panic about the coronavirus, a, a, a SARS-type flu-type virus that has um, been um, much in the news. A lot of people have died. A lot of people are infected around the planet. It seems to be spreading um, uh, without, without stop. And here in the United States, the administration's response has been, according to a lot of people, too little, too late. Uh, it seems to have been uninformed or suppressed or who knows what. And uh, the president has put Mike Pence in charge of the federal response when Mike Pence called my friend Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington state, where uh, the deaths in the United States have occurred, what Jay Inslee said, well, we'd be a lot better off, Mr. Vice President, if uh, you uh, paid attention to science and facts, um, which was uh, a good thing to say to a guy like Mike Pence, who frankly doesn't pay all that much attention to science and facts. And, and what President Trump and his folks are trying to do really is manage political fallout. Uh, you get the sense that President Trump recognizes that a pandemic disease spreading in the United States causing death and concern is not good for uh, his presidential ambitions. It 
uh, can spell disaster. It can be a kind of Katrina-like episode. Katrina, of course, was the hurricane, which had a lot to do, many people think, with the demise of, uh, of, the George, of George Bush. Um, uh, but here we are. And so how politically, how, does, how do you handle uh, the coronavirus? Now, I, I will just mention to my listeners that you're married to a doctor and you probably have some pretty good inside dope on, uh, on some of the scientific or medical aspects of the disease. Um, but the political aspects of the disease get pretty interesting um and and not in any morbid kind of way but people look to their elected leaders for leadership on on these kinds of concerns and how do elected leaders respond what do they do what should they say what shouldn't they say how should they act and what do we expect yeah you know it's a great question and i think that uh you're right that especially in this hyper-partisan political environment. It puts a premium on the need for members of Congress, members of U.S. Senate, local and state elected officials to really step up in a nonpartisan, fact-based, science-based way and do their duty, do their sworn duty to the public, to their constituents, and speak with any great expertise from uh, a medical standpoint, being just a doctor in law, what I can say, based on my experience and your experience, uh, me as a staffer in, in Congress, you as a, a member of Congress, is that when something like this begins to crop up, um, th- there's a few things that are sort of do's and don'ts uh, for elected officials. The first thing, I think, is as a do, is it is incumbent upon you to provide information. Um, there's a limited amount, especially in a public health emergency, that an elected official can truly do, uh, although there are resources, and you can start to think creatively about what can be done through the Department of Education, Department of Housing, Transportation, and obviously Homeland Security. There are needs that are going to crop up in your communities in all, that fall under the responsibilities of all of those departments. And you can certainly coordinate and think in terms of funding, um, and support opportunities. But your first obligation is to provide clear information, to get clear information, and you have access to the best uh, sources of information at the federal level. Um, Another responsibility you have is to be bipartisan. Um, We can talk about the politics of it, but uh, it is a time for putting aside um, partisan rivalries. Uh, You can also... Um, You know, one of the resources that members of Congress have at their disposal is a staff of 20, approximately, for for members of the House of Representatives, for example. And you can really have your staff be all hands on deck. There are going to be a lot of questions that come from your communities. There's going to be a lot of constituent service needs uh, that are going to crop up in your communities. And that's a service that you can provide. Um, And then uh, finally, you know, I think it's, it's incumbent on elected officials to be creative and sweat the details. Um, There's an awful lot of panic, concern. Uh, The most important thing in a crisis like this is to help manage the fear uh, among the public by being straight with them, by being honest, um, and uh, providing, as you say, leadership. So let me give you 
some reflections on that. Two examples recently that I saw. Uh, this is not my experience as a member of Congress, but I just saw it as a member of public. Uh, two different examples. One was uh, Patrick Mahoney, from a congressman from New York, uh, who was on one of the major shows, I forget whether it was CNN or MSNBC, and he was uh, talking about the response to the coronavirus because he is a member, apparently, of the, the, of the caucus in the House, which I certainly didn't know anything about. Maybe it's a new caucus that was something like the Serious Disease Caucus or the Pandemic Disease Caucus or the Crisis Disease Caucus. Apparently there's a caucus. And um, he was as, he was basically being baited by the the host or uh, by the host uh, or whoever was asking the questions on the show, trying to um, uh, bait him into a a partisan political position uh, about the coronavirus, and he he was really good. He kept he, he basically deflected all of that. Um, whatever the the leading baiting question was, and said, "Look, this is not an issue that we should look at in a partisan lens. Uh, let, you know, what's really important is that this affects all of us, and we need to make sure that the response of the federal government is quick, that the response of the federal government is complete, that the response um, to people is one that helps and doesn't hurt. And this is not a time for partisan politics, was the basic thrust of his, of his remarks. And, and this, of course, came in the context of the House passing um, an $8 billion uh, emergency help package to deal with the coronavirus when the president had asked for $1 billion. And the president, of course, has hollowed out many of the agencies specifically designed to deal with the proper response to the coronavirus. Now, I don't mean to be partisan, but it's hard not to be when the president's budget and his attempts have been to hollow out the CDC, to hollow out the NIH, and and uh, then to propose a completely inadequate uh, package to, to deal with this uh, problem. But Patrick Mahoney in New York, to his credit, did a good job at, at staying nonpartisan in his, in his response. I will contrast that with Matt. Gates, a Florida congressman who happens to be a Republican, who came onto the floor of the House of Representatives in a gas mask and was photographed sitting on the floor of the House in his gas mask. And he wasn't doing it because he was worried. He was doing it as a joke. He was doing it to make light uh, apparently, of the dangers of the coronavirus. And to me, and certainly to Patrick Mahoney, who commented on it, that seems to be a, a, an obscene political gesture designed to minimize, minimize what is real concern, uh, designed, if, well, perhaps not designed, but certainly the kind of thing that could inflict uh, emotional damage on 
uh, those who have been left behind by those who have died as a result of this disease. Those are two different ways <laughs> that you can handle um, a serious a serious issue. Uh, certainly, as a member of Congress, um, the the object is to be available to your constituents, to have your staff available to your constituents, because the information that that is available in the public is 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 pretty hard to piece together. Um, uh, and th- right now, unfortunately, the federal response has been really slow. Um, there aren't even enough testing kits out there to really test, and it's likely that when people start getting tested, we may find that a lot of what was diagnosed as flu was actually the coronavirus or COVID-19, um, the disease that the coronavirus uh, leads to. So, uh, this is not a time to make light. This is not a time to play politics with this. This is a time to get good information to the public. And as a member of Congress, your obligation is to be calm, uh, to be nonpartisan, because um, a virus knows a virus knows no politics. And and the only the last. The only thing I will say is that, you know, I I used to say when I was arguing for universal health care, I'd give an example and say, suppose you're standing on a street corner and you've got good health care and you've been to your doctor and the person next to you um, doesn't have health care, doesn't have access to a doctor, doesn't have access to preventive care, doesn't have, can't afford to go to see a doctor and that person um, has some disease. That person has, I used to say, that person has the plague and they cough on you and you catch it. Well, you you wish at that point that they had uh, access to, to health care. You wish at that point that everybody had access to health care. And a virus like the coronavirus, I think, really brings up the point that universal health care is something we need to have in an era when a virus can quickly spread to a to a global audience and nobody's immune. What do you think? I just want to underline two points that you made there. One is about the value of clear information. And as you alluded to, um, we saw Vice President Pence add to confusion when he said in... I think an attempt to allay fears uh, and to minimize concern that any American could get tested. Well, that's not exactly true. Um, To date, uh, the FDA has only been able to perform about 3,600 tests, and they've thrown around the number of a million people would um, be able to be tested by the end of the week. Turns out that's not exactly accurate information either, and that's left health professionals that I've spoken with in a very tough position of managing institutional response, managing the public's expectations about what is going to happen. So the value of clear information in a health situation, I don't want to say crisis necessarily, but a, a public health um, uh, incident like this uh, is paramount. Hey, um, hey Matt, let's take yes. a, I got to take a little break. Um, hold your thought. We're going to come back. Folks, it's off the record with Paul Hodes. We're talking with Matt Robeson. 
who is the author of moreperfectunionforum.com and a contributor to the alternet.org. We're talking about uh, the coronavirus and the political implications. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after this. More Off the Record coming your way. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at mhtalkradio.com. We're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. And we're talking with Matt Robeson, the author of AmorePerfectUnionForum.com, a blog devoted to a deeper dive into politics. And Matt's also a contributor to the Alternet.org, where you can read his thoughts about what's going on in politics. Uh, before the break, we're started. we've been talking about the coronavirus and some of its political implications. How should public officials handle things? How should they not handle things? What does the public need for information? Uh, and Matt had uh, been talking before the break about um, health professionals and information, and uh, I asked him to hold his thoughts. So, Matt, keep going. What's your to next your, one? To your great credit, during a not public health, but a similarly far-reaching crisis in 2008, the financial meltdown. When we were dealing with that issue, the only question that you ever asked of your staff is, what's the right thing to do here for my constituents? And I would offer that for members of Congress, for any elected official, the, the, the watchword, the, the guidance in this kind of situation is do the right thing. Do the right thing for your constituents. Do the right thing for the public. The politics will take care of itself. Some of the biggest don'ts in a situation like this are don't be political. It looks terrible. The public will penalize you for it. And that extends to people who are on safe political ground. Just this week, I saw two different constituent emails from members of Congress. One from in New Hampshire from uh, Congresswoman Custer, which I thought was very good. It was full of nonpartisan information and resources. The other from a member of Congress from Western Massachusetts, who is in a very safe Democratic seat, which started with a cursory link to information and immediately went on the attack about President Trump. Well, as we saw right after the election when Congresswoman Tlaib uh, came out and said, we're going to impeach the some insult that I can't say on the radio, it only takes one statement like that for the other party to paint your entire party as politicizing a crisis. It's the exact wrong thing to do. And as we were saying about the value of clear, consistent information, it ultimately hurts the public. So stay away from politics. The politics will take care of themselves if you do the right thing. So is President Trump immune to the political fallout of doing the wrong thing? I mean, when this, you know, just just a short few days ago, basically a week ago, what we heard the president saying was that the coronavirus is all a Democratic media hoax. 
uh, designed to hurt his political chances. Um, is he going to be penalized for that? Is the coronavirus going to come back to bite the White House uh, in the you-know-what? It's very, very hard to say. I think that the president's propensity for saying lots of crazy stuff is really well-baked in to the public at this point. I'm not saying that they fully ignore what he has to say, far from it, but it's the, the pattern thus far does not suggest that him playing fast and loose with facts and politicizing the situation is going to cause him to pay an immediate political penalty. As a general rule in politics, historically, big national events, uh, attacks, tragedies, uh, and public health emergencies tend to be unifying, whereas political big national events tend to be polarizing. I'd contrast the September 11 attacks, for example, which were highly unifying, with uh, the, tri- the, the, the hearings last year um, around uh, the Supreme Court uh, nominee, which were highly polarizing. You know what? Yeah, sorry. go ahead. Please. No, go ahead. I was. I had another thought. Finish yours, and then I'll uh, then I'll interrupt you. Well, I think what the the example that breaks that pattern a little bit was, as you alluded to earlier, Hurricane Katrina, which uh, you know initially it was unclear that that was going to play out in any kind of a political way, but what began to happen was that as the lack of confidence at the federal level began to settle in, began to get baked into the public's image of what was happening. And this turned from an act of God, from a, from a natural tragedy to more of a human-caused tragedy through sheer managerial incompetence. That did begin to cause an effect. So, you know, to your question, it, it, it remains highly uncertain. But it would be it would be very short-sighted for people not to begin to think about the possibilities here that if there is a big hit to the economy, if in the spring or uh, in the fall, if uh, it's hard for people to convene, to go to school, to have political rallies, uh, to do a lot of the normal economic activity that happens in this country, uh, it, it, it's not outside bounds to start thinking that that could have a major impact. Yeah, I, I I think that the uh, the real there's real danger here for the 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 Trump organization and uh, those folks who support this administration. Um, the manifest incompetence that we've seen in so many areas. You've got a president who doesn't know really how long it takes to make a vaccine. Who's got really who's put cronies who are loyalists into places where you really need experts and scientific expertise. Um, You've got just a clear and convincing case already for a slow, incompetent response and maybe even a cover-up. And if, if things get worse, and frankly, they're bound, sadly, to get worse, more people are likely to get sick. Um, you could see the kind of impacts you are talking about. I, you know, I just wanted to bring up uh, from from my own memory archives. Uh, think back to the financial crisis. As the financial crisis 
uh, was developing before before the election uh, in uh, 2008. Remember when um, then uh, President uh, Bush called both John McCain and Barack Obama to the White House, and there was a famous meeting in which John McCain basically was like a deer in the headlights when it came to what to do, and Barack Obama came across as competent, powerful, thoughtful, uh, intelligent uh, about uh, how to approach the crisis. I think that had a lot to do with the results of the election. People felt that uh, one, of, one of the candidates had a handle on, on, on what to do. Now, turning to the to the current scene, it's been a crazy week in the uh, world of politics. I mean, a truly crazy week. Nobody uh, uh, 10 days ago would have said that in one week we'd be at a two-person race for the Democratic nomination for president. Uh, And nobody would have said that Joe Biden would be leading in the delegate count and be the candidate with the apparent momentum, uh, having, um, having, having seen his performance in the first three contests. And something happened to Joe Biden. He left New Hampshire before the vote was in. He went to South Carolina. He, you could see that going to South Carolina resuscitated him emotionally. He felt like he was finally in a place where people really understood him. Uh, and then, uh, without any, you know, with having been at the bottom of the heap in terms of fundraising, I mean, when you looked at what Biden spent. $9 million against what Bloomberg spent, about half a billion dollars, and everybody in between. Biden didn't have money. He didn't have an organization in lots of places. He didn't have workers. Field, he didn't have a field campaign. He didn't have offices. He didn't have television ads. But on Super Tuesday, something really super happened. I mean, it's a, it, I think it's nothing short of a political miracle that what Biden pulled off, people finally decided somehow they coalesced. And instead of the turnout turning out for Bernie Sanders, as people expected, instead of a huge youth vote propelling Sanders, uh, it seemed there was an across the board decision by a lot of people that Joe Biden was the guy who could coalesce a coalition um, to defeat Donald Trump Uh, and people put aside his gaffes. People put aside whatever concerns they might have had about his record. Um, And people decided that he was he was the guy. And in places in places as far apart as Alabama and Massachusetts and Maine and Minnesota, uh, Joe Biden was victorious and in short order the dominoes began to fall. I mean, there a lot of people say that Jim Clyburn, somebody, I saw a headline that said, Jim Clyburn saved our democracy. Uh, well, be that as it may, I'm really just focused here on what Biden did. And in short order, uh, people dropped out. 
uh, significant people began to endorse him. And just uh, just before we began to uh, record this show, Elizabeth Warren um, suspended her campaign. No endorsement, but she suspended her campaign. And many people saw Elizabeth Warren as the person who was trying to forge a middle path um, to uh, the Democratic nomination uh, as uh, not a Democratic socialist and not a uh, liberal centrist, but as a true progressive with a lot of good ideas. Um, and now there's a lot of grieving going on um, about the demise of Elizabeth Warren and the fact that we are now left with a choice for the presidency between three old white men. So it's a remarkable time in our presidential politics. How did we get here, Matt? Well, obviously the dominoes really did start to fall, as you say, with South Carolina and the focus there. And it's hard to measure the specific impact and disaggregated of Clyburn's endorsement. The sense is that that was influential. But as, as you set up, it did, did seem to be a series of dominoes where... The result in South Carolina, the work that was put in there by the Biden campaign led to that result, uh, which then led to the Buttigieg uh, dropout, the Klobuchar dropout, the consolidation. It was an, it was an effect that I think uh, with New Hampshire gone was harder to see on the ground there, but uh, was widely anecdotally reported happening um, in other states. But I don't think anyone foresaw the uh, degree to which there would be this amount of consolidation for Biden. And one of the really interesting takeaways from it is what you were alluding to there, which is just how little was done from a campaign standpoint, especially relative to how much was done from a campaign standpoint from other campaigns. I mean, Bloomberg, is, Bloomberg spent half a billion dollars to buy this election. Half a billion Dollars, people, half a billion. Let me say that again: almost five hundred million dollars. And when you looked at the when you looked at the the graph, and you saw Biden had raised and spent, or spent something like nine million dollars versus five hundred million dollars, and Biden, you know, just trounced Bloomberg everywhere, beat Bernie in places that nobody ever expected. You just got to scratch your head. And and I, I, I will say this, and, and I'm not, uh, this is without regard to any thought about who's going to end up as the nominee and who ought to be the nominee, but I've seen a lot of uh, moaning on Facebook from people uh, who I love dearly and respect, friends of mine who are saying, yeah, the, 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 the election was rigged for Biden and the corporatist establishment uh, uh, came out and that's where he's getting all his support. The corporatist establishment uh, came out for Biden. Well, I beg to differ. Actually, what happened was people voted a grassroots movement across the board when you look at it, people voted without, in fact, any of the kind of money that people are saying that Biden has because he just didn't have it. It was without money, without organization. It was some sense of the electorate that they needed to vote for Joe Biden on Super Tuesday. We're going to take a short break. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the Internet. We're talking with Matt Robeson of AmorePerfectUnionForum.com. 
and a contributor to thealternate.org about presidential politics here in this crazy time. We'll be back after this. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL, AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. For your binge listening pleasure, you can find us anywhere in the world, anytime, day or night. And we're talking with Matt Robeson of AmorePerfectUnionForum.com. Uh, he's the author of a blog which dives deep into politics, and he's a contributor to thealternet.org, where you can read his excellent thinking about presidential politics. We're talking about the week that was, the craziest week in presidential politics in my memory. What do you think, Matt? Well, if you go back to the segment you were teasing right before the break there, I find the idea that there was a secret cabal of Democratic leadership who somehow was in contact with the electorate and was coordinating a massive surge toward one candidate. Very interesting. What about the Democratic Party in general and the Biden campaign in particular would make anyone think that they have the ability to pull off that level of coordination? If that was something they could do, why didn't they do that a long time ago? Anyway, the, the, whole, the whole notion there is supremely weird. But look, I do think that it turns to the question now where we, where we stand as of this week of it's going to come down to the electability argument. It's been that argument. We've had this date from the beginning, um, to quote the famous movie line, and this is seemingly where it's going to end. Now, Super Tuesday proved that trying to make political predictions is a fool's errand, <laughs> and trying to say anything with any certainty is ridiculous. And everything you say about the future needs to be couched with the degree of uncertainty you have. So I want to acknowledge that it is possible, it is entirely possible, that Joe Biden will continue to gather ahead of steam here and begin to run away with this. It's also entirely possible that Sanders will regain momentum coming off of, say, Michigan, and will be able to accrue a majority, and then there's the range of options in between where this is a slug it out so we don't know which of those is going to happen what i do think we can say is that if this race extends for the coming weeks and months the prime battleground is going to be the electability argument on each side so what's what's fascinating to me is that that there there were predictions from people at the beginning of all of this that that even with a huge field of candidates, it would eventually come down to a slugfest between two well-loved octogenarians representing different wings of the Democratic Party. 
we have a broad tent as Democrats, for sure. There is a spectrum of, of thought, and, but there is a unity of values. Uh, I think it's fair to say that, you know, without going into the common values held by the uh, social Democrats and the progressives of the left and the liberal or progressive centrists um, in the center. Um, You've got Biden, whose appeal seems to be to older voters, to African-American voters, um, to uh, more establishment or centrist or moderate voters, perhaps even lapsed Republicans and uh, independents who uh, may be on the fence, and you've got Bernie on the left who seems to be building a coalition of Latino voters and younger voters and those who see uh, the need now not just to return to some kind of normal dysfunction, but who want to uh, really have a revolution revolutionary approach to a system which where they see that income inequality and corporate greed has uh, hurt so many many people now in the end there's more commonality i think uh, than people uh, are able to emotionally see right right now but this question of electability um and and who is it that the electability argument is is aimed at? Um, is the electability question one of who's going to bring turnout among Democrats and those disaffected? And is the electability around the fear that Sanders is too revolutionary, too extreme for for whom? For for what constituency? Where does, where does an election like this come down? Doesn't it really come down to a few key states uh, where, where in 2016 Trump won by relatively narrow margins because a number of Sanders voters crossed over to vote for Trump and uh, African-Americans and white working people were not happy with Hillary Clinton. And if so, what's the appeal this time around? There's a fear from a lot of Democrats that if Sanders isn't the nominee, he has no control over his folks and they'll stay home or they'll vote for Trump or they'll write in somebody, but that they won't vote for the Democrat and on the other hand, there's a fear about Biden that he can't sustain uh, and build a broader coalition uh, and attract any of the progressive folks who um, want a revolution. So what's a poor party to do? How do you assess the electability? Because unlike so many elections in the past, um, there are a lot of people who are going to be unhappy about their choices. I mean, after all, in, in a lot of places, a large percentage of the votes, including the early votes and other votes, went to people other than Bernie and Biden. How do you pull a party together? How do you say, how do you think through who can beat Trump?
Well, there's a lot in that, and I certainly agree 100% that the way that the Democratic Party does its nominating process, and you and I touched on this a few weeks ago, is incredibly dumb and needs to be redesigned from the get-go around an approach that leads to winning. An approach like that would look like greater focus on the swing states, greater measuring of ability to both drive turnout and appeal to swing voters, and a fundamental rethink of the way that the party brands itself, makes use of television in the off year, and builds its candidates up and unifies the party in the run-up to the actual voting. But your focus, I think, is the right one, which is this electability question, and it is not easy to to wade through all of the speculation, misinformation, intentional, uh, motivated reasoning that happens on the electability argument. I don't want to scoop myself with the piece I have coming out shortly on this question, but what I have tried to do is sit down and do that wading through to look at each of the propositions that have been put forward in the overall electability argument and say, what's the evidence? Democrats are supposed to be the party of science. Well, let's see what the evidence says about each of these arguments. And I'll just wrap on this because, boy, is there so much we could say about it by saying that I think what you put your finger on is the key question. The evidence does seem to very much support the idea that, yes, Joe Biden will do better with swing voters. Swing voters exist, and Joe Biden does seem to be positioned, most likely, this isn't a certainty, it's just a likelihood, to do better with swing voters. On the other side, the most compelling argument on the, in the Sanders camp is what you said, that there is a contingent of voters who are strongly attached to Bernie Sanders and who will either vote for a third-party candidate or will actually cross over and vote for Donald Trump. How do we know this? Because that's what happened in 2016, and it did indeed, it was one of the factors, but it certainly more than accounted for the margin of loss in the key swing states. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of reacting to uh, some of what I've been seeing on social social media. I mean, we're in a we're in a time when uh, when there's a lot of grieving on the left. A lot of women voters are especially grieving um, to see that the glass ceiling in our politics seems to be intact at the presidential level. We started with a, a number of really strong, really, really good uh, female candidates, and then there are none left. Uh, we're left with these <laughs> two octogenarians, uh, both of whom likely have some health issues, both of whom, uh, you know, are in their upper 70s. They're going to turn, either one of whom is going to turn 80 um, yeah, in the Oval Office if if they get there, and they're up against the ugliest uh, old white guy American in living memory, Donald Trump. I mean, it is quite 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 a development um, in our in our politics and um, there are many on the on the left who are who are really highly critical of 
uh, Joe Biden's past record. Some of it is true. Some of it is not. Um, And there are many uh, in the establishment who uh, have been seen as quite desperate to block Sanders' candidacy. But as you say, if Biden had relied on some conspiracy from the DNC and the, quote, establishment and, quote, the big money, he would have raised a lot more money than he did. He would have had a much different organization than he had, and he would have brought him out to uh, help him out in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, which he didn't. Um, so this is this is going to be some interesting race, and I think uh, it's going to be tougher and tougher to predict what will happen. Um, the 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 wild card some of the wild card that we're seeing is uh, mayor bloomberg looks like he's going to devote his organization and and funding to the democratic candidate it's likely that uh, bloomberg uh, would favor biden whose politics are probably a little closer i think bloomberg considers biden uh, the more quote practical of the candidates in his approach to governance, understanding that um, making change is tough, that change, even on a large scale, uh, has to start somewhere and and then go somewhere, that wholesale revolution may be um, challenging for the American electorate, exhausted by uh, what will be four years of Donald Trump. But it's, uh, it's time to stay tuned uh, and uh, Matt, I really appreciate your coming back to the show, and we will have you on often and more often as we go down the line, um, because once I declare as a candidate for the state Senate, I'm going to uh, largely hand over the microphone, and I'm sure that you're going to have a really fun time on Off the Record. Uh, maybe it'll be Off the Record with Matt Robeson before too long. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And we're wrapping up a terrific show today. We had Matt Robeson of AmorePerfectUnionForum.com and a contributor to the Alternet.org to talk about coronavirus and politics, as well as the crazy presidential race we find ourselves in. What a week it's been in presidential politics. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record. Thanks to our listeners. You can catch us at nhtalkradio.com, where all our shows are archived. We'll see you next week for another Off the Record.